2: Hello, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do, Spooky Edition. Your favorite consumable psychology
3: podcast. I wish I could do a Vincent Price
2: impersonation. Oh, that'd be great. Because that would be so good for this. But alas, I cannot. So that's all right. We can dive into this. Welcome everyone who is joining us. Just a quick reminder before we begin, this marks the beginning of our psychological spooky stuff topics month of episodes so every week in october because there are five wednesdays in october we get to release a episode on some psychological concept that also revolves around creepy stuff yeah i
3: think we're gonna have a lot of fun with this because abraham and i share similar interests around halloween and all the october goodness right like like there's candy And there's creepy things like knocking on strangers doors and asking them for said candy, (laughs) but also like horror movies and werewolves and vampires and all the stuff that goes around that. Like I actually really dig all of the stuff that goes around, like goes on during this month. I have a lot of fun with it. Like I have a lot of fun with it from a conceptual standpoint, like. Right. Where does witchcraft come from? Why do we think that vampires exist? What is left-hand path magic and why do people subscribe to it? Why do these people have such cool band names? Like stuff like that.
2: Why do people think that they can turn into animals when they are cursed or something?
3: Yeah, uh which is exactly what we're going to get into today. Perfect. I love it. So, Abraham, I have a question for you. Shoot. If you could be any animal, what would you be and why?
2: I would be a turtle because turtles are the best. Because they, <laughs> they they live to be hundreds of years old, and they just kind of walk around all slow, living the dream. It just seems like what a cool existence that would be.
3: I will be honest, I wasn't expecting that.
2: I'm glad I could blow your mind. Yeah, yeah, that was
3: great. <laughs> I think I would be a penguin.
2: Okay, yeah. why penguin? They're just nice. Okay.
3: I like the ones that live in warm weather climates, like they get to live near a beach. Oh, okay. I'm perfectly good with those, so I'll be like a penguin that hangs out on the rocks.
2: Okay, like a, aren't there Galapagos penguins? There are. Perfect. Yeah, so we'll hang out. Yeah, actually, that sounds great, because I can be a Galapagos tortoise, and you can be a Galapagos penguin, and together we'll be very chill tropical animal podcast.
3: Yeah, (laughs) it'll be like, why we do, or whatever.
2: (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, man. We're just like, here. It's
3: Whatever, man. It's cool. So today, we are going to talk about clinical lycanthropy. We're going to try to ask some questions around this, but like I said before, I love... And I think what's going to be really fun about this month is I love the, the human behavior around things like superstition, mysticism, and like magic and all that stuff, because I personally don't understand how people subscribe to that stuff, but I am interested in why it happens.
2: And there is actually a topic that I didn't think about when we were prepping for this month of spooky psychology topics, but there's one that's kind of a myth-busting topic I'd like to break down about why people like monsters and and those spooky stories. Why is that something that is so ubiquitous and pervasive in the history of human storytelling? I think it'd be really fun to tackle that at some point. But yes, I agree. Like This whole topic of the people who Where these mysticisms come from, people who really buy into this, people who have the experience that is sometimes distressful to them of experiencing horrors and stuff, all that stuff is very fascinating, I think, from a psychological perspective.
3: Yeah, so that's why we're going to start with the thing that has seemed to have a a pretty significant impact on very few people, but has resulted in a medical diagnosis. So we're going to talk about clinical lycanthropy. So you ready to do this? I am ready when you are. I think a good place to start would be with definition, symptoms, and history, like so, we're gonna kind of give you a lot of information up front to kind of talk about what this looks like and where it came from. So, the term lycanthropy, which is still one of my favorite words, it's such a good word. It just has good payoff, right? Like yeah. you have those words that have like really good, like there's enough consonants in it, and there's just enough hard vowels uh, or whatever you want to say. But lycanthropy itself is the supernatural affliction that endows a person with the ability to shape shift into a werewolf.
2: And the term werewolf is derived from Old English word. I'm going to say "Werwolf," <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's my German version of it again. Wewolf. Um Wewolf, which translates to man-wolf. And the term lycanthrope, or is it lycanthrope or lycanthrope? I think it could be either one, but I, I would go with lycanthrope. Lycanthrope, derived from ancient Greek, which translates to wolf-person. So an idea that's been around for a while. So with clinical lycanthropy, when we talk about this, clinical lycanthropy
3: is officially the delusion or belief that you have been transformed or have the ability to transform into an animal. So it's not just werewolves. It's talking about animals in general. And sometimes it's described as lycomania. And so you'll hear it described a couple different ways. But the official term that people typically use is clinical lycanthropy. And it could be any animal. It doesn't have to be werewolves.
2: Yeah, I saw things like. I mean it was it was literally anything i think hyenas even things like frogs and bees cats horses tigers i mean really as you said just about anything and when people have this experience this also includes behaviors or feelings that might suggest or support their beliefs such as them I guess, behaving in that animal sort of way. So all of a sudden someone's tongue shoots out across the room and they catch a fly. <laughs> Not really. I'm, I'm kidding about that part, but they might otherwise be in the sort of mind space, if you will, of this is how the animal behaves. Therefore, my behavior will emulate that behavior.
3: Right. So, so you'll see some of those things, but a lot of what's reported is usually some level of maybe like a memory or some kind of clarity about an event that's happened. So it won't necessarily be that they have like that they awaken in that moment and have like some lucid experience where they are in the body of an animal. A lot of it is that they'll have some kind of memory of it and they'll be like, "Did this happen?"
2: Right, almost like a like a dream state sort of thing.
3: Yeah, exactly. So but what makes clinical ichthyopy really interesting too is that sometimes it could be argued, I guess, I should say It can be argued that it might be grouped with a particular specific set of diagnoses called culture-bound syndromes, which we've talked about doing an episode on this a couple of times because they are really interesting and kind of very specific to a group of people. Right. So when we talk about this, there's not really a formal classification for where clinical lycanthropy can go, but they are liking it to this idea of culture-bound syndromes.
2: Yeah. There's not an actual diagnostic criteria that exists in a book or diagnostic manual or desk reference that is clinical lycanthropy. But there are things that categories that it could fall into that many people have argued should fall into potentially in the future. And we'll get into it later. But one of the caveats there is that there just are so few examples that it's hard to provide enough data to say like this is a disorder that has a classification that has these characteristics because the end size is too small.
3: Yeah, it is a, a very, very I mean, you are talking about such a minute population.
2: But I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So these culture bound syndromes are also sometimes called folk illnesses. That sounds a little, I don't know, pejorative to me. Like it's like just a folk illness. You guys are yeah.
3: it's like oh it only happens in the backwoods of Alabama.
2: Yeah. These are classified by including both psychiatric and somatic symptoms, but are specific to a particular culture of people, you know, from some place and these diagnoses have no physiological or structural ideology and are also not recognized by other cultures specifically. So it basically is saying that there is nothing that is really clear that you can point to that is consistent and say that is that sim- that symptom or whatever.
3: Right. So another example of this is going to be something called ghost sickness, which also sounds so cool. And it's so
2: spooky. I was going to say, is that where you accidentally ingest a ghost and it makes you sick? Uh,
3: You're not far off Okay, <laughs> actually.
2: Or like if someone accidentally consumes the cremains of somebody.
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, that would be a whole thing. Like, did you, did you just snort that line of grandfather? <laughs> I know, that's very morbid. Uh, Hey, hey, we're here. We've arrived in October. It's fine. That's right. With ghost sickness, what it is, is it's a diagnosis that includes symptoms of general weakness, loss of appetite, suffocation feelings, and recurring nightmares, symptoms that people probably have in other places. But the reason this is called culture bound is because it's specific to a, a group of Native American people, specifically to the Navajo tribes, and they believe and they argue that the symptoms are a result of being possessed by the deceased. So the idea is that they've been possessed by maybe a loved one or a family member that's passed away, and then they start coming into contact with these symptoms.
2: And as you said, and I just want to come back to this culture-bound point, what is important about this is that if this was a part of the human experience, you would expect that it would occur, and maybe at variable rates, but it should occur in just about every culture that you look at. And for this one, it just doesn't. It's actually pretty specific. There's a very small handful of places where this or something like it have been recorded.
3: Right. So that's why we're seeing like, well, and this is what's going to make clinical iconthropy a little bit more interesting because it's not specific to a group of people. It seems like it's mostly white dudes, but it could be, (laughs) but there's not really any evidence that it is. There's not really any evidence for it at all, but kind of not the widespread piece, but there are some specific things to look at. Now, when we talk about culture bound syndromes or anything like that, there are other ones to include. Like, just some other examples would be like Dot syndrome from India. You've got Malati moon from Haiti. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing those correct. So I'm probably going to mess that up. You've got Coro from Southeast Asia, which we've talked about on the show before. Do you remember talking about that? Yes, I do. Yeah. And then, and Susto from Mexico and Central America. So these are just some examples of what's out there. We're not going to dig into all those right now, but they are out there.
2: Yeah. Examples of things that are unique to a particular geographic area for the most part although it sounds like with the clinical lycanthropy that this is a (laughs) a like race and demographic and gender thing rather than it being a geographically bound thing
3: yeah i mean the case studies i'm going to mention are like white guys in their 20s who think they're werewolves
2: right okay so the argument for clinical lycanthropy is not specific to a region of people, as I just said, but may have some cultural elements related to, I guess, maybe a cultural practice, so like a religion or spirituality, and some of those who are diagnosed believe it is even demonic possession as a result of some kind of religious transgression that they may have engaged in.
3: There were a couple anecdotal reports that indicated that they started having these beliefs after they have, com- and you'll see this in one of the case studies, is that they engaged in a an interesting set of behaviors. And then what ended up happening was they started having these experiences like maybe maybe I'm being punished as a result of this thing that I did.
2: Do you think that any of these were immediately following an ayahuasca trip? <laughs> you know
3: that it would be interesting to see.
2: <laughs> I drank the funny tea and turned into a werewolf. Oh, man. Yeah. Those uh, what, vision quests.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing that cited that specifically. As a matter of fact, what's going to make these kind of interesting is that the people that suffered from it had no history of anything.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow.
3: That's really interesting. So that's going to add like another fold to this where it's like, well, I want to see the ones that are like, oh no, I was a coyote. <laughs> it just happened. That's all. It just happened. It was fine. I just had this tea and I was a coyote. and I just kind of sat there. It was fine. I didn't do anything nefarious. So I guess when we're talking about this and because I see this a lot with like abnormal psych students. We'll do this where they're like, oh, I have all these diagnoses. Oh, yeah. So now you're sitting in our podcast and you're going, do I have clinical lycanthropy? (laughs) You probably don't. Yeah. The current diagnostic criteria, the kind of the goals they look at are there are reports of moments of lucidity or memories that the person often feels like an animal or has felt like one. The person engages in behaviors that resembles animal behavior like growling, clawing, howling, or more extreme cases like biting and scratching. So those are the things that we kind of talk about as like the primary diagnostic criteria. and That's where people are going to go, do I have this? Because we all do that on some level, right?
2: Yes. As soon as you hear about some diagnostic criteria, the immediate reaction is, oh, that sounds like I've had that experience. That must be me. And which I think I am actually very fascinated by that. I feel like that reaction to things might fall somewhere in the category of hypochondria. But I I don't know, like I I really like to dig into that more and like do a little research and find out more about it. But it is an interesting reaction. It could also be that if you're thinking about this as I was having the thought as you were you were talking about their growling, crawling, howling, biting and scratching. They may have just finished watching one of the Fifty Shades movies and that (laughs) might be its own diagnosis. But (laughs) I think that falls in the philia characteristics, right? (laughs) Oh, man, we're clearly in October now. Okay, we've made it. We've arrived. Let's move on. (laughs) All right, so to date, and starting I guess about the 1850s, there have been only 56 reported cases of clinical lycanthropy identified. With only about 13 of them meeting any kind of what might be considered a criteria for medical diagnosis. As we said, this doesn't have a formal diagnostic criteria, and so it's hard to even say that there are there are 13. Although many tried to apply a filter to it, and that's the number that they came up with. But like that's just that's way small. To identify, if you think about the number of people there are in the world and how many people you'd probably want to have represent a particular psychological diagnosis, 56 is well below what that threshold is likely to be.
3: Yeah, so it's not likely you'll see it in an updated DSM anytime soon. You'll hear people talking about it with very specific case examples, but you're not going to hear people go like, oh yeah, there's an
2: entire population of people that suffer from being a werewolf. Unless we cause that by talking about it on this podcast.
3: I would like to see for areas that, that we have listeners, if there is a sudden spike in clinical lycanthropy reports.
2: <laughs> Although I don't I don't want to come off as being dismissive about people who have this experience. I'm sorry. I, that, that, that wasn't what I meant. I was just trying to be funny. I'm bad at that.
3: Well, no, no, no. It was good. But what we're going to kind of get into is like, it's usually a symptom of something more serious right so like we kind of joke and it's like okay well i think you're i think i'm a werewolf or i ate a i ate a fly across the room but it's like well that's kind of ingest and all that but then you're like oh there are some bigger issues going on and that's actually what they discovered more but i'm getting ahead of myself
2: <laughs> yeah we we have been sort of jumping around a little bit sorry no it's been
3: so much fun though and that's actually an issue of my notes so i prepped the notes for this one and i just kind of jump all over the place if you all haven't met me yet <laughs> So historically, there are examples of lycanthropy, and we kind of talked about like those historical contexts of like where werewolves come from and all that. But what you'll see is that even in the Bible, there's a reference to King uh Nezib- Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Thank you for that. I'm not even gonna edit that out. Nebuchadnezzar. So his behavior, as well as the fate of Odysseus's crew with their run in with Circe. So there are some examples of like people being actually turned into animals or their behavior being animal-like. There are also stories of curses or punishments related to specific behavior, right? So you've got this idea of uh, the Wendigo where if you, cannibals would be turned into this large hulking beast that would wander the forests of America. So it was like kind of an interesting story where don't eat people. If you eat people, you will become a monster.
2: So the Wendigo thing was specific to America?
3: It's my understanding that it was,
2: yes. There was a Netflix movie that I think was called The Ritual that had this group of people who sort of worshipped and fed this giant hulking monster thing. And I don't remember the word Wendigo being in there, but it was like in the forest. I think it was in another country. And that's what I was asking. I was like, oh, I wonder if that was actually inspired by this story.
3: From what I understand, it's Native American folklore. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. And then there were some ideas that clinical lycanthropy had direct links to medical conditions like, quote, excess of black bile.
2: Yeah, that was at one point it was believed that the things that regulate our psychology and our health were different forms of, well, not bile, but the humors inside our body. And the humors were essentially our juices. I think people really seem to think that we were just filled with liquid, which I mean, they're not they're not wrong, but there are a balance of these different liquids that ran through our bodies and that that controlled everything that we did turns out that's not the case but that would be and that is that what this is in reference to
3: yes so if you have too much black bile as part of your humors you're probably turning into a
2: werewolf <laughs> okay There are some theories that the syndrome is a result of neurological processes, but there hasn't been enough examples of the disorder to identify a more formal medical ideology and to identify what those processes might be. Now, obviously, if someone has this experience, then it involves their brain in some capacity, right? We just don't know what that really looks like. Is this something where it's a hallucination? Is it something where it is more like, I guess, a break from reality? Is it something where it is... They're actually perfectly lucid, but they actually are doing this to sort of get attention. I mean, that doesn't seem to be the profile, the people that we're looking at here, but who knows? Like, we just don't have the data here to even find out what's going on. Like, maybe they're perfectly sane and they're just, you know, they're just trying to get the spotlight. Maybe they're suffering something else and we just haven't identified what it is. Hard to say.
3: Yeah, I mean, and you'll see when we kind of dig into some of the case studies that is usually an issue of something, a, a larger mental health concern. Like, you'll see that it's usually something like that, and this is kind of just one of the manifestations of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you got to think about those cases where you have someone who is suffering from some serious psychological disorder or issue of some kind. And they might say and do all kinds of stuff that seems bizarre and hard to understand. And if you take just one pattern of those things and really focus on it, then you might think that that's its own problem when really it's just, there is a more general psychological issue that they are struggling with. And that just happens to look like for them, that thing that they said or did.
3: Right. And I think that's the key right there. So as we've been talking about this, we've been saying that like, you know, people think they turn into animals and stuff, but the key term here is delusion. Yes. It's identified as a delusion and that is a symptom of larger mental health concerns that might arise. And so so if you're looking at it as I think I'm a werewolf, that's a very specific scope. But if you're looking at it as I'm having a delusion, that kind of opens it up to the possibility of it being some other thing to be able to actively
2: treat. All right, perfect. So we've been talking about what this is, how it shows up, how it might relate to culture or culturally bound distress in a way. And also a bit about what diagnostic criteria there are and the examples that have currently existed. So what we can talk about next then is what people have done to try and address the specific issue of expressing the delusion, I think I turn into an animal. Yep.
3: So currently, as you would imagine, because there are not enough people to study this or even call it a formal DSM diagnosis. There's not enough information on the actual treatment specific to that delusion. As a matter of fact, there's not a current treatment for clinical lycanthropy at all that's been identified specific for that concern.
2: This should be the number one issue in the political landscape right now. Why is there not funding for those 13 people?
3: (laughs) We need an advocacy group.
2: Yep. I'm sorry. I I feel like I, I am sounding like I'm making fun of these people. I really don't mean to. It's just... I really just keep having the thought that when we talk about this, that it's so difficult because so little is known. And so on the one hand, we want to advocate for those people to get help. And on the other hand, it might be that they just need something more general than that, addressing that specific delusion.
3: That's exactly it. We're going to get into that. So you're there. You're on the right track. And I like that.
2: (laughs) Perfect. All right. So then obviously, as there's not going to be any specific therapy that is Designed to address that delusion. There are drug treatments that are used to treat delusions more generally and that have directly shown some impact of people who would have this disorder, if you will, that there's just not enough to completely eliminate the symptoms that they are reporting.
3: Right. And as a matter of fact, what ends up happening is those drug treatments are usually part of a regimen to treat some other diagnosis they have. So most of the treatments that are implemented are usually a result of some comorbid diagnosis. So what you'll see is that an uh, an individual who has some type of of delusion that we're discussing here will be treated for something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or something else that has a delusion built into those symptoms. So the case studies that we are gonna talk about each suffered from some level of mental health concern that had to do with maybe one of these diagnoses or another diagnosis that contributed to having these
2: delusions. So is it the case that all the people for whom this was the case that was like in like the 1800s and early 1900s? It's hard to say. We don't really know. Okay. But, but there have been some recent cases of this idea of clinical lycanthropy.
3: Yes. And those are the ones that we're going to talk about
2: now. You want to take this first one?
3: Yeah. The first study, I think this one is really interesting and kind of, it, this is going to turn into one of those ones. It's like, Again, it sounds ridiculous and there's a pretty clear, I feel like there's a pretty clear beginning. We talked about spiritual and like religious practice types of cultures that might influence this. So this is where this is going to kind of go a little bit. So Najin Tufani, 2004, they highlighted a specific case where a patient suffered from comorbid diagnoses of lycanthropy and Cotard syndrome or the Cotard delusion, also known as the walking corpse syndrome. Zombie syndrome. Zombie syndrome. So essentially this person believed they were turning into a dog. They had the delusion of being transformed into a dog, but they also had the delusion of being dead. Wow. A person walking around having the belief that they were dead. They expressed symptoms of guilt about actually, and this is kind of where this comes from. This person also engaged in a particular set of bestiality types of behaviors. Okay. He had sexual contact with a sheep. And so he had expressed some symptoms of guilt related to that. And the people assessing him and treating him kind of figured that that, it might be more related to that particular behavioral concern and not necessarily that he thinks he's a dog
2: so it was found that he also then suffered from bipolar mood disorder and expressed some zoophilic orientation and those were identified as more clinically significant concerns than the idea that he was just turning into an animal but instead maybe not instead of but at least the focus then shifted to the idea that what was going on here was more about this sexual urge if you will and these other psychological disorders such as bipolar mood disorder. And you know who knows if just treating those that bipolar mood disorder would have had the outward effect of reducing symptoms of clinical lycanthropy.
3: Yeah. So this particular study was focused more on kind of like parsing out whether or not it was this particular diagnosis or if it was a symptom of a larger diagnosis.
2: Right. Yeah. I was just saying that we didn't have what the treatment would have entailed after that and what the result of that would have been.
3: Yeah, exactly. So that's one case study to kind of see all the confounding variables that contribute, right? So this person seriously suffered from some stuff that needed to be treated, but this delusion might be just a symptom of all that.
2: So in the next example we have here from authors Sayer, Autzen, and, and Kagan, I guess, they published an article in 2014 discussing a 21-year-old male who had reported extended episodes of a, a delusion. And the patient had no history of substance abuse or psychiatric disorders and actually showed no other physiological abnormalities in his medical tests because it, it actually would make a lot of sense to say, is there something going on in the brain of this individual or... You know, do we have any other psychological disorders that we should investigate?
3: Yeah, and so what ended up happening though with this patient, and this was a little bit different than the other one, so this patient started reporting symptoms of growing hair on his arms that was more coarse and more animal-like, his jaw hardening and his jawline becoming more werewolf-like, and he became, and this was observed by the treating members of the team, it was observed that he was becoming more disagreeable and actually stopped answering questions during the interview
2: process. They weren't observing the growing hair and jaw hardening, just the disagreeable part.
3: Yes, 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 yeah, The disagreeable part. They didn't see the other parts. So what ended up happening though, is he was treated and then he was released and he came back for treatment. And the second time he came back for treatment, he was prescribed medication and kept inpatient for four weeks. So he was kept in a facility for four weeks while they stabilized him on his medications and saw that the delusions were decreasing. So, There's still no evidence, though, that he had any other psychiatric disorder. So this one was kind of a unique and strange circumstance where he was having this delusion, but they couldn't find some other reason for it.
2: So interesting. I wonder where I wonder how this guy's doing now. You know, if he's sort of out in the world living a normal life or if he's still suffering or, you know, I don't know. I'm very curious.
3: There was a follow up to that. And they did say that he was doing well generally, but he was still unemployed. So he was having a hard time gaining meaningful employment, but he was living a, a fairly normal life overall.
2: I could see, I guess, hiring process and it comes up. Do you think that you turn into a werewolf? And he's like, I do. And they're like, that might make it difficult to work here.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That might, that might get in the way a little bit.
2: I don't know how often that is a part of the interview process, but just (laughs) just something to think about.
3: I think I'm going to add that to my, to my list. Yeah. I don't know if I can actually, that
2: might be a discrimination issue. So maybe not. (laughs) I cannot discriminate on the basis of being a werewolf.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to hire the werewolves as long as they're not hurting anybody. So, but I think, and this is where I think the, the, the topic of clinical lycanthropy came to me, and this is where, you know, we've been kind of saying like, you know, there are some real life impacts and there are these things, but there are some real things that happen and some pretty serious things that go on with this particular set of behaviors. Right. So even if it's not a diagnosis, you can label it as something because you're seeing an impact in the community. So in March 2016. Austin, I think it's pronounced Haruf. Haruf or Haruf, maybe. Haruf, maybe. Is 19 years old. He was charged with the murder of a South Florida couple in their home. So he actually broke into their home and killed this couple. And when the officers arrived on scene, they found him on top of one of the victims, growling and chewing on the man's face. That's really intense.
2: Yeah. And apparently the toxicology report, I mean, the immediate thing you're thinking is, wow, this guy was on some heavy drugs. They actually found no substances in his system at the time of the arrest. So at least we can rule out things like maybe bath salts. I mean, yeah, that makes sense that that would start there.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the history of Florida, right? South Florida, bath salts, people eat people's faces. But (laughs) So he actually was not, he did not have it. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and is currently being treated for bipolar disorder while he's incarcerated. So again, that's another one of those symptoms it could have been a delusion of of some other psychiatric disorder that he was suffering from and it had some really serious consequences so while we say like if you think you're turning into a vampire maybe go get treated because there may be something else or not a vampire we haven't even gotten into the vampires yet true if you think you're turning into a werewolf you should probably go get it treated and checked out because there may be something else going on
2: and not just a werewolf if you think you're turning into a snake or a bee or an albatross or a snail or a sea turtle. Or an oxalittle. Yeah, oxalotl, yeah. Uh, then in any of those circumstances, seek treatment.
3: And that's kind of all we really know about clinical lycanthropy. It is a very broad and strange thing that doesn't have enough information to give it enough like substance. Yeah. But it was one of those things that came to my attention because it did have like a pretty serious impact on somebody.
2: Well, that's kind of fun, I think, just to unpack the science and psychology of something like this disorder when talking about sort of the spooky psychology stuff and you know in for Halloween for the month of October we do a lot of this play pretend we do a lot of this I guess inviting the idea of sort of weird mysticism, superstition, horror, all of that is kind of part of the culture. And it's something that we celebrate. And at one point I think we'll want to unpack why. And actually we do have an upcoming topic. Should I spoil it now? Or should I, should I save the reveal? Let's give it to him now. All right, perfect. So we do have an upcoming topic where we're going to talk about why we like scary movies. And that might actually be a good point to, unpack a little bit of the, of the celebration of things of like horror and the kind of grotesque and whatnot. But that will be one of the, the episodes for the month uh, for our horror themed month is is why we like scary movies.
3: I'm really excited about that one, too. That one's gonna be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, I think that one will be good, especially given that we both like scary movies. <laughs> yeah, like so many scary movies. <laughs> yeah, perfect. All right. So take it home.
3: Yeah, let's take it home. So I think this is in this kind of goes back to one of my areas of interest where it's like You get to see something like mythology and science clash. Yeah. Right? And so you get to see this melding of like, werewolves are scary. We don't really know what it is, but here, what does it look like and how does it manifest in like a real world situation? So as much as we like that whole mysticism piece, there are some real world things that happen that are likened back to those things. So we get something like this, where you have somebody who there's a, there's a diagnosis where somebody is thinking they're turning into an animal. And now there's significant impacts on the community as a result.
2: Right. I think another important point here, and that we've mentioned a few times, but I want to make sure everyone leaves with this, is this is so extremely rare. And I mean, if we're talking about 56 cases, and let's just assume that they were all 56 very legitimate cases, which they weren't, but let's just assume that they were. That still represents like a decimal very, very far away from one as a percentage of the population. We're talking about point all the zeros 1% of the population for whom this has been reported. And so there's just not a lot that's known, there's not a lot that is clear about what this might be and there's no formal treatment for clinical lycanthropy, psychological werewolves or bees or whatever. Yaks.
3: I don't know that I'd want to turn into a bee or a yak or a bison.
2: Yeah. A moose might be cool
3: big yeah that may be fun but it's cold that's true where they're at or is it moose or mises <laughs> 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 anyway i had a lot of fun with this one i don't have any other take-home points with this but i did really enjoy kind of like gathering some information and looking at these case studies i've always found culture bound syndromes really interesting so we are talking about doing an episode on that one day as well so I'm glad that it was all able to tie in and also tie into some of the spooky stuff, right? So we had the walking corpse syndrome and we had werewolves and we had the number 13 for the f- official cases that were diagnosed. So, yeah, you know, I think this was a lot of fun. I'm excited to do the next couple.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we don't have a formal listener mail today. Uh, We did have someone write in and offered a resource that they, where they work, which was looking at drugs in relation to bullying. And so just to let everyone know, I'm going to go ahead and put the links of the resources that they sent. I didn't vet them super thoroughly, but I did look through the resources that they sent and it looked like it was on the up and up for the most part. So I'm not vouching for them necessarily, but I thought I would share since they did contact us and ask that we just give the additional link. So I'll just put those links on the bullying episode. If anyone else wants to look at that with respect to, again, primarily their concern here was addressing like addiction, drug abuse, and mental health, that sort of thing. And so if anyone wants resources, that'll be there, but otherwise no other listener mail for today
3: all right sounds good so i think we can wrap
2: yep if you are a a werewolf or any other mystical midnight creature feel free to contact us if you can type or send us a letter if you would like please don't show up at our door and eat us but you may certainly get in contact with us on social media or the the computers and whatnot if you have any other stories or or i guess spooky psychological things you'd like to discuss also please contact us we love hearing from people we like it when people stop by to say hi. Really, any engagement is stuff that we enjoy. So,
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, 100% agree. All
2: right. And before we wrap up, I also want to make sure I give a major shout out to our fantastic new producer that has taken our podcast quality up several levels. And I think that we have sounded so much better over the last couple months that he's been doing this work and so so much thanks to justin greenhouse for his production and editing on this
3: yes thank you so much justin we really are digging it so all
2: right perfect well i think i've got nothing else so we can close it out here this is abraham and it's a shane we're out see ya
0: you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com/slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at ww.d podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to wwwdpodcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at NogDesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.